God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. Thanks so much for coming again today. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there. So we bring the service to you wherever you are. And we hope you'll be encouraged today and discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Would you open in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, back toward the end of the Bible, and chapter 9 in the book of Hebrews. That's where we're going to be today, and we'll put those verses up here in the video for you also, just to make it easier for you to follow along. I'd like to talk to you today about restored. You know, the history of mankind, beginning in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, was when God created man in His own image. At that time, the Garden of Eden was a beautiful place where God would walk with man and Adam and Eve would walk with God. There were wonderful and amazing things in the Garden of Eden. Just to think that God Himself would come down to the garden and walk with man. Well, that's a thought that goes beyond all imagination that we have, isn't it? The creator of everything, the maker of all the stars in the sky, the creator who spoke all of the galaxies and the stars in space into existence, the one who formed the mountains and the seas, <clears throat> the creator who made each and every creature on earth. God, the maker of all things, desired to be with and to walk with man. And perhaps one of the most amazing things in the Garden of Eden was the tree of life. Now this was a tree that if anyone ate of its fruit, they would live forever. There was healing in that tree for the physical bodies of mankind. The Lord provided for everything that man needed. He was the protector of them. He was the guide for them. He kept them healthy. He just gave all of these wonderful benefits to mankind. And this was all provided in His garden. He guided them also through the wonders of His creation. He loved them greatly. You know that. He created them to be His children, to be loved and cared for by Him throughout all eternity. Everything in the Garden of Eden was wonderful. But then Satan tempted Eve, and Eve, along with her husband, Adam, disobeyed God by eating of the only tree in the garden that God had told them not to eat of. It was a different tree, not the tree of life. This was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They took of that forbidden fruit and deliberately disobeyed God, and that's how sin began. Sin is disobeying God, disobeying His commands and His laws, disobeying His instructions for living. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, God cast them out of the beautiful garden and set powerful angels, cherubs as you would say in English or in Hebrew, kruvim, with a flaming sword to guard the entrance of the garden, to guard the way so that no one could ever enter it again. And in that way, mankind could no longer get to the tree of life, you see. So they could no longer eat of its fruit and live forever. Also, they could no longer walk with God and fellowship with Him like they used to. They were now outcasts. They had been cast out of the beautiful place that God had created just for them. Now, God knew that once sin was in the world, it would grow worse and worse. It would grow to take over more and more of man's life. And Satan, the father of sin, hated man. Here's why. Other scriptures tell us a little more about Satan. It tells us that he had originally been created by God as a beautiful angel. But in heaven, Satan became proud and he began to exalt himself against God. He wanted everything to be his and he wanted everyone to worship him as they worshiped God. But in all his beauty and in all his power, Satan was still just a created being. God was his creator too. Yes, he was a powerful angel, but the almighty God who made all things was the creator. 
The power of Satan could never be compared with the power of God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So God had Satan cast out of heaven and cast down to earth. Now understand what that means. Satan was cast out of eternity where there is no time, where God and his angels live forever. And Satan was cast down to the earth, which is subject to time. In other words, those living on earth would be born into physical bodies. Then they would live for a certain number of years and then they would die. So Satan, the father of lies, who was formerly in the everlasting eternal kingdom of God, was now on the earth in the realm of time. And the clock was ticking. In other words, his time was short. His end was determined. And nothing could stop that clock. After a while, he would be judged, punished, and destroyed. As a result, Satan was very angry with God. But he couldn't do anything against God. God is almighty. He's all-powerful. All power and might are His. There is none who can stand against God. There is none who can resist Him. And while angels are certainly powerful, when compared to man they are, that is, they're no match for God Almighty, the Creator of the universe. So Satan couldn't fight against God. He couldn't hurt God. He couldn't do anything against God. But here's the thing. He knew that God created man to be His children. And He knew that God loved mankind. So Satan turned his attention to mankind. He began to try to hurt God by hurting man. And in the Garden of Eden, Satan convinced Adam and Eve to disobey God and to sin. And that sin separated mankind from God. So the very ones that God had created to be with Him and to be His children could not be with Him anymore because of their sin. Now sin is a terrible disease that gets worse as time goes on. So God closed the way for man to get to the tree of life. He closed the garden so that man could not eat of that tree of life and live forever. So God sent His angels, the Chruvim, or you would call the cherubs, in the Garden of Eden to block the way for man to enter that garden again. And He gave them a flaming sword that turned every which way, and man couldn't come into that garden anymore. And if man had been able to enter into the presence of God with all that sin in his life, the purity and righteousness and holiness of Almighty God would have destroyed that sin in man. And that would have destroyed the man along with it. So God blocked the way back to the garden, the paradise God had made for man. And man could no longer enter the kingdom of heaven to be with God because God would judge the sin and that would destroy man. Man could no longer have that wonderful, that beautiful relationship, fellowship with the God Almighty, the Creator. Man could no longer have access to the tree of life that would have given him everlasting life. It would have been horrible if man, in his fallen state, in his growing sin, were to live forever in that condition. The sin condition had to be fixed first before everlasting life could be restored. So God, in His mercy, locked man out of the garden. Man was no longer allowed in the kingdom of heaven, the everlasting kingdom, the forever kingdom. And with that, man now lives a temporary existence filled with pain, filled with tears, heartache, broken dreams, and violence. That's the life that exists today in a world without God. If man had access to that tree of life, he would be able to live forever. But with the sin in his heart getting worse and worse, over time that sin would transform man into a hideous creature capable of doing only evil and violence, hurting and killing others and becoming more and more evil as time went by. You see, man has it wrong. Man is not evolving. No, he's devolving. It's not evolution, it's devolution. He's getting worse and worse. And I think you and I can see what's happening in the world today and remember how it used to be. And even in our short lifetimes, we can see things are definitely getting worse. But God had a plan. 
a plan to restore man at the proper time. He had a wonderful plan, a beautiful plan to restore man by removing his sin and cleansing man's heart. And he provided the atonement in his son, Jesus Christ, for that to happen. It was foretold in Pesach, really, you know the story. God told the Israelis, the Hebrews, when he was bringing them out of the land of Egypt, he said, I'm going to go through the camps tonight and I'm going to judge the Egyptians and I'm going to take their firstborn from among them. But just to make sure that you are mine, you do as I tell you to do. I want you to take a spotless, a blemish-free lamb and I want you to let it live among you for a while and then I want you to kill it. All of the, all of the camp of Israel would kill it kill their lambs, one for each household, would kill those lambs on this certain night and put the blood of that blemish-free lamb on the doorposts of the house. You've heard me talk about this before in previous lessons here over the last few weeks, how Pesach was really talking about how God would save man and open up the way back into the Garden of Eden for mankind. So in Pesach, those who put the blemish-free lamb's blood on the doorpost of their house, God told the people, He said, when I see the blood of that blemish-free lamb, in other words, the equivalent of a sinless person, if you will, when I see the blood of that blemish-free lamb, I will pass over that house in judgment. I won't judge it. Well, why would God judge it if they were the Israelis and not the Egyptians? And He was trying to rescue the Israelis. Well, simply because Israelis also had sin. In fact, the Bible says that we've all had sin. It says in the book of Psalms and Isaiah that God looked everywhere throughout the world to find someone who was righteous, anyone who sought after God, who did good always, and says He found none, no, not one. Well, so this blemish-free lamb is basically God saying, He's telling man that later on, I'm going to have a man that's going to give his life for you, and he must be blemish-free. And by that, God means he must have no sin in his life. And then when I see his blood on the doorpost of your heart, I will pass over you in judgment, because you're not the Egyptians, you're Israelis. He understood that. But we all had sin, and God had come to judge the Egyptians. And if He saw that there was no blood covering that house for each of those Hebrew families, He would have judged them also. Because He did say to them in the instructions for Pesach night, for Passover, He said, when I see the blood of the blemish-free lamb, then I will pass over that house in judgment. Now, obviously, that also means that if he saw the blood, if he did not see the blood, rather, on the doorpost of that house for a Hebrew family, he would not pass over that house in judgment. It wasn't the fact that they were Hebrew or Israeli. It was the fact that God saw the blood. He didn't say to them, and when I see that your house is filled with Hebrew people, I will pass over that house in judgment. That's not what he said. He said, when I see the blood of the blemish-free lamb on the doorpost of your house, then I will pass over that house in judgment. Well, that's going to be the thing that foretold God's Messiah and how God would save mankind. Even Moses, the great prophet of the Torah, had spoken of this coming, coming Mashiach, this coming Messiah warning the people not to miss Him. He said, don't you miss this coming Messiah, the Savior who's going to come to restore man? In the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law of God, in the book of Devarim, Devarim is how we say in, in English, Deuteronomy. Uh, the Hebrew word Devarim is plural for things. It's, it says things, but you can also think of it in this context as words. And really, it's a copy of the law that God had given to the people in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Devarim. So it's the things that God wants you to remember. 
And Deuteronomy in chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, Moses himself said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brothers. Him you shall hear, according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly saying, Let me not hear the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see His great fire any more, lest I die. Explain. I just want to explain to you just real quickly. The people, when God spoke on Mount Sinai, when they saw the great fire on the mountain and what God thundering His voice as He spoke, they were scared to death. And they said, Moses, don't let us see this anymore. We're fearful for our lives. Well, God heard what they said. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 17 of Deuteronomy, He says, What they've spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be, listen, and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. In other words, that man will lose his life if you don't accept that prophet that God was going to choose and raise up. A man like Moses that he was going to raise up. Now, my Israeli brothers and sisters, my Jewish family, listen to what I'm about to say. Moses is still taught in the synagogues of Israel today. And around the world, he is still taught. But the prophet that Moses himself spoke of, that he said God himself would raise up and that whoever did not listen to this prophet would be cut off from the nation of Israel, would lose his life, said God would require it of him, because that prophet would be speaking the very words that God tells him to speak. That prophet was Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, so you see why this one person, this Messiah who was to come, is such an important person. Not only for the things he speaks, but for the things that he did and the things that he does. So it would be that through this one that God spoke about to Moses, that his plan to save man would come from. This was God's plan, the plan to restore man, the plan to restore creation. We're talking about God restoring stuff, you see. It was a plan to restore man. It was the plan to restore creation from the devastating effects and the violence of sin. This was God's plan to restore man to God, to restore you. This is God's plan to restore you to Him, to restore your access to the eternal and forever kingdom of heaven. This was his plan to restore you to his presence and once again give you access to that tree of life so that you could eat from it and have everlasting life. This was God's plan to restore man's brokenness, his hopelessness, and to replace it with peace and joy and everlasting life. And that's what our scripture today in Hebrews chapter 9 is speaking about. Turn to that and let's read it together. It says in Hebrews 9 verse 1, Then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which there was a lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind a second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. Some of your Bibles will say the holy of holies. Verse 4 continues, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. 
in which were the golden pot that had the manna, manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Verse 5 continues, And above it all were the cherubim of glory, the chruvim overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. And the writer of Hebrews is saying we can't speak of these now in detail. He's trying to teach the people something else, something more basic in this chapter. So he leaves out some of the detail of what he's describing here. But the Tanakh describes the tabernacle in the wilderness in great detail. But verse 6 here in Hebrews chapter 9 continues. He says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. These were the things that the priests did. But into the second part, the Holy of Holies, you see, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood. In other words, he always took blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this. Pay attention to this verse, verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of holies the holiest of all, was not yet made manifest while the tabernacle was still standing. In other words, normal people couldn't go into the holiest of all places, the holy of holies. They couldn't go there. And even the high priest could only go there one time a year. And he could only go there once he made a sacrifice for his own sins as well as the people of Israel before he could go there just once a year. And if he made any mistake at all, he would be killed. And they would have to drag him out because they put a rope around his ankle and it had a bell on it. And as long as they could hear the bell ringing, they knew that he was alive and walking around and still moving. But when the bell stopped, they figured that for some reason he had done something wrong and God had killed him. And therefore, they would take the rope and pull the high priest out of the Holy of Holies. And they did not go in there to get him or they would have died as well. What I'm saying is, that's how holy God is. If you're just telling me that, well, you know, God, God and I, I have an agreement with the man upstairs. Everything's going to be okay. Not according to the scripture. The reality is, and I'm not trying to be mean to you, but you're not good enough. And if you think I'm just being holier than thou or something, I'm not good enough. None of us are good enough on our own. It's only when the blemish-free Lamb of God has His blood applied to the doorposts of our hearts that God looks down and sees the blood of His Son on our hearts. And then we are saved and we are safe from judgment because God has sent His Son to take our place, that on the cross He took all of our sins for Himself, that we might be saved. All of our sins, past, present, and future. And by the way, 2,000 years ago almost, when He was crucified on the cross, all of our sins were in the future. None of us could be born yet, right? Of course. Now, I know some of you are pretty old, but you're not that old. I'm probably the oldest one here tonight. Isn't that sad? Hmm. Oh, well. Anyway, you see that we're talking about the Holy Spirit in verse 8, indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still, still standing. Verse 9 continues, It was symbolic for the present times in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered but those cannot make the person who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. Right there, God's saying, you have to be perfect. Stand before God, perfect in conscience. And all of us have sinned, so none of us are perfect in conscience. And verse 10 says, concerned only with food and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But then... Verse 11, it says, But Christ, 
which is just another language for the, the Messiah, came as the high priest of good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of the Messiah who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, in other words, without sin, how much more will that cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 15 continues, And for this reason He, the Messiah, is the mediator of a new covenant. Now remember, we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks. Remember, Yeremiahu Hanavi, Batanach, Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 31, verse 31 in the Tanakh, God Himself said, The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it's not going to be like the old covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them and led them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. It's not going to be the same. But He's going to write His laws on our heart. And when He says, The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, my Jewish brother and sister, pay attention. This is so important to you. I'm Jewish too. This is where it is coming down to the critical information that you need tonight. And that is, God said, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a Brit Chadashah, a new covenant, now, those of you who are Hebrew speakers, you know exactly what I'm saying. Because in Hebrew, we call the Christian New Testament a Brit Chadashah. A Brit Chadashah. And here's God in Jeremiah in the Tanakh. Not in the book of Matthew in the New Testament. In Jeremiah in the, in the Tanakh, here's Jeremiah. Here's God Himself speaking to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is writing it down and said, God Himself said, I'm going to make a Brit Chadashah. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And then maybe you're thinking, well, I know, but we, we already have a covenant and we learn about it every week in the synagogue. And Moshe, Hanabi, Moses, the prophet, and we study him every week. And God is saying in Jeremiah 31, and this Brit Chadashah that I'm making for you, Israel, for you, Judah, is not going to be like the one that I gave to Moses. It's not going to be like the one that I made with your fathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. And so it says, for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions, all of our transgressions, all of our sins under the first covenant. What's he saying? He's saying that the new covenant, the mediator of the new covenant, the Messiah, the Son of God Himself, the Mashiach who was to come and did come, He died for the sins that we have committed, that all mankind have committed. He died for all of those sins. What is a sin? It's all those transgressions of the first covenant, it says there in verse 15. All the transgressions and disobeying the first covenant, all those laws that were broken, that were disobeyed, whether you meant to or not, those disobediences, those transgressions under the first covenant, the law identified what a sin was. And if you didn't keep it, that was sin. But now in the new covenant, the mediator who is the mediator of the new covenant, through his death, has to atone for the sins that you and I have, transgressions of when we disobeyed God's law, Torah in the Torah. That those who called, those who are called, it says, continuing in verse 15, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. 
And then verse 16 continues, For where there is a testament, where there is a covenant, testament and covenant mean the same thing in Hebrew and in English, where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, the person who sealed that testament or that covenant with his own blood. For a testament is in force after men are dead. Since it has no power at all while the testator lives, verse 18 says, therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Oh, but yes, the first covenant was dedicated with blood. Verse 19 says, For when Moses spoke every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. That's what Moses said. And God used Moses. And then... Likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. If you look at the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, Batanach, Batorah, in, in the law, in the Tanakh, in the Torah. If you look at the book of Leviticus in chapter 17, you'll find that God says the blood will be used. And basically He is saying that in all of these things for these sacrifices and all of the works that the priest and the high priest have to do, the purifying of all these utensils and vessels has to be with blood. And it was the blood of a blemish-free lamb or blemish-free sacrifice. Now, in verse 23, then he continues. He says, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. That's a very important verse. I want to talk to you about that. Verse 23 says it was necessary for the things of the tabernacle to be purified with blood as we see in the Torah that they were. And God specified that you would use the blood to purify these things before they could be used for the sacrifices that the people would be using to have their sins forgiven for that day, for that year of Yom Kippur. All of these things had to be purified and cleansed by blood. But he's saying these are only for the temporary tabernacle here on earth. But the heavenly things themselves have to be purified with better sacrifices than these. What's he talking about with the heavenly things? He's talking about this. We mentioned this, I think, last week. When God was telling Moses the plans to use for the tabernacle, it says, back in the Torah again, it says, make sure that you make this tabernacle after the plans that I showed you on the mountain. God showed Moses the true tabernacle in heaven. And Moses made it by the plans according to the true tabernacle in heaven. Well, why do we have a tabernacle on earth then in the wilderness if there's already a tabernacle in heaven. And that is really the center of the conversation I want to make with you tonight. The things on earth, the high priests, the sacrifices of animals, can never forgive man's sins permanently, forever. I mean, it would make you feel less guilty for a year until the next Yom Kippur, and then the sacrifices would be made again. But it would never take away your sins, or else you wouldn't have to do it every year at Yom Kippur. Do you see what I'm saying? And that might work for earth, because earth and your life on earth is a temporary life. That tabernacle in the wilderness, those high priests that came in and out of that tabernacle in the wilderness, they were temporary lives. When one died, another would take his place. But in heaven, I just want you to understand something. Heaven is a forever place. You won't find any alarm clocks in heaven. 
I don't think I've never looked, but it makes sense. Besides, how, how would you get Amazon to deliver them there? Any, never mind. But anyway, you won't find time, you see, in heaven. Because heaven is a forever place. So, man has sin, and every year his sin had to be atoned for. So that same man that's making atonement in that tabernacle in the wilderness here on earth can't go to the tabernacle in heaven because he won't even be allowed in heaven because he's got sin in his own life. And nothing that sins will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the forever kingdom. It's the kingdom of the great and mighty God, creator of all things. And God is perfect, righteous, holy, just, and true. And if sin enters his presence, he will judge that sin, as we've said many times in the Tanakh and also in our Brita Chadashah, the New Testament. He says, the soul that sins, it will die. We've covered that so many times, that verse from Yehezkel Navi, Ezekiel the prophet. We've covered that so many times. God will judge sin. So if someone were to come into heaven to try to make these sacrifices in the real tabernacle, in the forever kingdom, the forever kingdom of heaven, he wouldn't make it there because the sin in his life would take his life as God judged that sin. So the heavenly tabernacle had to have one who would come into it who had no sin and only his blood would be accepted on the altar and to purify all of these things in the heavenly tabernacle. And since he had no sin, he would live forever because sin brings death. And the one that sins, it shall die, as he said in Ezekiel. But obviously that also means that the one who doesn't sin will not die. That's what it also means when you look at that verse in Ezekiel. So he's a forever high priest. And we said last week, Heaven is a forever place. Ah, you're starting to see this come together. So if the sacrifice for the sins of mankind are finally made in the heavenly, heavenly tabernacle by one who lives forever, by one who has no sin, therefore one who can enter heaven himself without being destroyed for his sin, then those sacrifices that are made for the sins of mankind will last forever. The forever high priest making the sacrifice with his forever life on the forever altar in the heavenly forever tabernacle in the kingdom of heaven, the forever kingdom, to give those whose sins are forgiven, to give those who believe on the Son of God, the mediator of this new covenant, the Mashiach who God had said would come, the one who Moses spoke of, who said, be careful to listen to this man that God is going to raise up from among you, my brothers and sisters. That's what he told the Hebrews, the Israelis at that time. He said, be careful to live to him, listen to him because the, it will come to pass that the soul that does not listen to this new prophet that's going to come, that God's going to bring, that soul will be destroyed. God will require it of that soul if you don't believe on this new prophet that God said he was going to send. And where did he say that? In the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, Ba Torah Batanach, in the law, in the Old Testament, the Tanakh. Our Old Testament, the Jewish Tanakh, the Jewish Torah, Moses himself said it. God himself confirmed it and said it. Don't you miss the Messiah. Everything. Everlasting life. Entering into heaven. Everything depends on knowing him and believing on him. That God sent his only begotten son into the world to save the world by his sacrifice because he who had no sin 
became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. It was the exchange. We didn't deserve it. It was a free gift of everlasting life to all who would simply believe on Him. And verse 24 then says, For Christ had not entered the holy place made with hands. He wasn't talking about the tabernacle in the wilderness. He was talking about Christ, the Mashiach, the anointed one, entered the true tabernacle, the forever tabernacle in the forever kingdom of heaven. All these other things on earth were just copies of the true tabernacle, but heaven itself had the true tabernacle. And we continue to read, it says, Now to appear in the presence of God for us. The high priest, Jesus, the Messiah, will now be appearing in the presence of God, representing us. Verse 25 says, Not that he should offer himself again, because he shouldn't offer himself often, his high priest, as this high priest enters, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he's saying this new high priest who doesn't have any sin, who gave his life and atoned for the sins of mankind in the true tabernacle, the forever tabernacle in the forever kingdom of heaven, this true Messiah, this true high priest will not have to offer himself over and over again as the high priest on earth had to offer sacrifices every year with the blood of another, an animal, that could not remove sin forever. But the one who went into the heavenly tabernacle, Jesus, the Son of God, the one without sin, offered himself once and for all. Otherwise, he would have had to offer himself over and over again since the foundation of the world. And now, once at the end of the ages, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Now, what He's saying there is, in other words, sin was never permanently removed when the blood of animal sacrifices was shed in the temporary or the copy of the true tabernacle. In the temporary tabernacle in the wilderness, it was just a copy of the one that Moses had seen, that God had showed Moses in heaven. That's why God said, make sure that you make it after the pattern that it showed you on the mountain. But in heaven, the blood of God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was shed once and for all to remove sin forever. Animals couldn't do that. The blood of animals couldn't remove sin forever. You couldn't be in the kingdom of heaven with that. You had to have someone's sin who lived forever to make atonement for you in the forever tabernacle in the forever kingdom of heaven. His blood, the Son of God's blood, was shed once and for all to remove sin forever in the forever kingdom. The forever sacrifice for the forever everlasting life in the forever kingdom of God, and we who believe on Him are His forever. Do you want to live forever? Of course you do. Who wouldn't want to live forever? Well, everlasting life is now available once again through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now let's finish with the last few verses of our chapter today. And as it is appointed for man to die once, it says in verse 27, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Now as we read last week, the tabernacle in the wilderness had the Holy of Holies, and no man could enter in except for the high priest. And then, only once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and even then, only after the high priest had offered a sin offering for his own sins. And he would also offer a sin offering for the sins of the people. And the Holy of Holies was the most holy place. But in the New Covenant spoken of in Jeremiah 31, 31, God spoke of the day when His Messiah would come and would give a new covenant to the house of Israel, the house of Judah. We talked about that. John 14, Jesus, the same Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, 
salvation of God, Yeshua. In John, in the Yohanan, in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You see how this is all fitting together now? The Tanakh, the Torah, the Brit Chadashah, the New Testament, it's all fitting together. The words back then, the words from now, the words, it's all coming together. That's because it is all the Word of Almighty God. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. What he's saying is, you can't get in the forever kingdom if you got sin. And you do have sin. All of you have sin. And you can only be forgiven of those sins by someone who is without sin, who gives his blood for you and makes atonement for your sins in the forever tabernacle, in the forever kingdom of heaven. And you can't even get into the kingdom of heaven to even find that tabernacle and do these things. But the one with no sin is in the kingdom of heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and He ever lives to make intercession for us. He says, No man comes to the Father but by me. So you see, in Jesus, and here's what we're saying today, this is the bottom line. You see, in Jesus, the way back to God is now open again. Did you hear what I said? The way back to God, the one that was closed in the book of Genesis, in the book of Genesis, the one that was closed with the chuvin, the cherubs, and the flaming sword turning each way, the access to the uh, Gan Eden, or the Garden of Eden, as you would say in English, the access to the forever kingdom where you walk with God and you be with God, and you don't have to worry about your sins anymore, that access has been opened up again even though it was closed in the book of Genesis. Even though God prevented anybody from coming into it again in the book of Genesis, yet through His Son, all who believe on Him, it will be opened again and you can come into the kingdom of heaven because your sins have been paid for. That way to God that had been closed in the book of Genesis is once again open to mankind through Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Sinful man hadn't been let into the presence of God, but now through forgiveness provided by God's Son, the atonement for sins had cleansed all who believe on Him and their sins are taken away. Thus, we all can come boldly before the throne of God if we believe on His Son, Jesus Christ. And we can be in the Father's presence because the way is now open again. The way is restored. The way is now open. Now, I want to ask you some things. Are you reluctant to believe on Yeshua, my Jewish brother and sister, because of what people will think about you? Did you know that the prophets were persecuted in the Tanakh and that many of the people were reluctant to believe the words of God's prophets because they were fearful of what the other people would think about them? Here's what I'm saying. God stood for you. And if you will stand for Him in this life, He will stand for you in heaven. But if you do not confess Him in this life, he will not stand for you in heaven and you will not be allowed in. God not only restored the way to heaven, He offers to restore you. He can make you new. He can give you a new heart. You can be with Him forever in the kingdom of heaven, the forever kingdom with the forever king. Once again, having free access to the tree of life to whoever eats of it so that you would live forever. This is God's forever plan to take away sin, to restore creation, to restore peace and joy to you and to take away your guilt and shame, to restore acceptance for you before His throne, to restore entry into the everlasting kingdom, to restore you to His presence and care forevermore, forever. You can be new. 
you can be restored. Do you want to be restored? Do you want to be forgiven of your sins, your shortcomings, your mistakes? Do you want to have that guilt and that shame lifted off of your shoulders? Those uncertainties about everlasting life and your ability to enter into heaven, do you want to know that you are permitted to go to heaven? God will show you and you can know that heaven is yours right now by believing on the one who sacrificed his blood for your sins. If you'll give your heartaches, your broken dreams, your broken heart to Him right now, just look up and say, Yes, yes, God, I do believe on your Son, Jesus Christ, and I do want to be saved, and I do want to be given everlasting life in heaven. He's going to hear that prayer and make you His child. It's that simple. Just tell Him you believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, and that you want to be His child. That's it. Here's what I'm saying. It's up to you now. Why don't you give your life to Him right now? If you call out to Him, He'll hear that cry. He'll answer you. He'll rescue you from that darkness you're in. He'll shine His light on your heart and you'll be given newness of life. He'll change you into a new person. He'll throw all that bad stuff, that bad history, all of that stuff, He'll throw it away. You'll be completely new given a new start, a new life. He'll give you everlasting life in the everlasting kingdom, heaven, and that's guaranteed by God Himself. It's up to you. I want to give you a chance to believe in Jesus the Messiah as Messiah and Lord today and to receive God's peace in your life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. Just pray something like this. God, I do want to know You and have real peace in life. I believe on Your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to You. Thank You, Lord. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, God heard you, and He's already started working in your life. Over time, you're going to begin to see the wonderful changes He's making in your heart. Get in a good Bible-based church, learn about Him in His Word, and talk to God every day in prayer. He's going to do amazing things in your life.